We're your health and safety angels, Daisy Silcock and Lindsay Mason. Health and safety, busting the barriers. Welcome to this extra special episode of Health and Safety Angels. I've got some very sad news. There is no Daisy this week, but I have happy news. I've got the fabulous Dr. Stephanie Fitzgerald with me to discuss health and well-being and her amazing book, Reworked. Hi, Stephanie, and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We are doing a special episode because we've been talking and you have produced an amazing book that I have... Uh, read and I think that the topic sits so perfectly with our podcast so I want to be able to share the fabulousness of it all with everybody and hopefully encourage them to go and have a read because we're never going to cover everything in a podcast Um, so tell me about you to start with yeah so um I, my background is I'm a clinical psychologist and a neuropsychologist by specialism, which is a really fancy way of saying I'm a big old nerd about the brain. And I'm really passionate about helping people understand how their brain impacts in their mental health and what, what they can really do to sort of utilise their brain in the best way. Um, so that's sort of my clinical background. And then my more corporate background is working as a health and wellbeing consultant. And I've really worked across a really broad spectrum of industries but they say your vibe attracts your tribe so I don't quite know what this says about me but I really specialize in safety critical environments so those sorts of environments where health issues are safety issues and if something goes wrong it goes very wrong so for example I've worked in like civil aerospace and atomic weapons and those sorts of industries where you know your health is not just a nice to have extra consideration it's really crucial to the safety of the work that you're doing um and i just sort of put the two together so i'm as part of my health and well-being consultancy i bring in some of that uh, brain wizardry and i bring in some of the psychology and really just try and combine the two so that people can feel happier and healthier and safer at work and that was what led me to write reworked is it hard to communicate the message you want with the general workforce? Because already some of the, the words that we're talking about, you know, not everyone understands. Um, what was the neuro... The neuro- neuropsychologist bit? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so being able to get a message across, for me, is, is really important. And that's what we really specialise in, is, is not using the big words. Um, do you find that that's an issue with passing the message across? No, but it's definitely something that I'm really careful to avoid. I don't see the point in using big, fancy, impressive words if no one's going to understand what I'm saying. So I would say um, when I worked in clinical settings, my job was to give people often um, confusing or overwhelming news. So when I worked... um, So the neuro part of my job really just refers to the brain. So I do lots of work with things like brain injury. If someone had had a head injury and it had impacted on their brain, I was then responsible for taking someone whose understanding was already limited due to their injury through all this information that was overwhelming because it tended to be negative. And it was my job to make that understandable, to make sure that people knew the next steps, that they felt reassured, that they felt comforted, that they knew they were going to be well looked after, 
So all throughout my career, both clinical and corporate, I've really had to break down messages to very digestible um, nuggets of information that people can take away and process and understand and then use. Um, and I find, you'll probably find this yourself, if you speak to anyone in a different role in a corporate setting, you adjust your language. So if you're talking to the finance guy, you start talking money. If you're talking to HR, you know, there's no point going in with the sums because that's not them. You know, you're going in with maybe the people or the absence or whatever it may be. If you're talking to the CEO, you may use slightly different approaches around what they're interested in than if you're talking to your operations manager, who's got a very different focus. So I think just that adjustment of language is so crucial um, and it really helps people connect. Yeah, well, that, and that's our goal, right? Our, our goal is that yeah. the information we're sharing is actually taken on board by the people we're talking to. Otherwise, no one's achieving anything. And, and we, do, we do bring that up a lot on the podcast because that is our goal for breaking down those barriers. Because sometimes people can be interested in something but don't know how to get the information because the one way it's delivered doesn't suit them. Um, and and I'm, I'm absolutely fall into that category. I... Um, I takes me a while to really understand things and I need things broken down once I've got it I've, I've totally got it but it can take a while and confusing big words just puts me off so uh, uh, and I, I then I'll say oh do you know what I won't bother with that and and we're we're creating those barriers aren't we if we use those big words and turn people away from our topic so yeah. we're going to talk about your book. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a copy here that I have, um, or oh, it's well and truly read now because it came on holiday with me. Um, I absolutely love it. The, the, the message that you're passing resonates with me throughout the whole book. Um, but it's not just amazing with what you've got in the book. It's the way that you share it as well because there's no jargon. There's no big words, nothing that I had to go and Google to understand what it meant, which, which for me allowed me to make it through the whole book without having to put it down and, and come back to it as such. Um, so tell me about the book. Yeah, so reworked. Well, first of all, thank you for those really kind words. I love that it resonated. I love that it came on holiday with you. I feel as though reworked is having more adventures than I am. This is very exciting. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, really, so the, the book really came out of, I've worked in workplace wellbeing now for 10 years and people kept saying to me where do I read more about this where do I um you know learn more how do I how do I build my skill set with this what can I read and it just didn't exist there wasn't a, a book with what I was trying to get across uh, in existence so I thought I'm going to write one um easier said than done of course you know it's taken me a few years but I got there in the end but really the essence of reworked is no one tells us how to work Right. No one sits us down as children and says, this is what a good job looks like, because we use that term all the time. Oh, you know, they've got a really good job or they need to get a good job. And typically what we mean is salary. Right. So when we talk about a good job, what we mean is a well-paid job. Yeah. But no one talks to you about your health. No one talks to you about your safety, about the engagement, about your happiness. They talk to you about, oh, get a good education so you can get a good job. And that no one defines that. And I've worked with um, health and well-being for a long time. And even well-being, I think people sort of dismiss as a lettuce in the canteen, yoga on the lawn, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing. 
And I really wanted people to understand health and the impact of health issues, but also the impact of not being safe, not being able to speak up at work, not being able to um, engage with your job, with the, the reason you're getting out of bed in the morning um, and the impact that that can have on your happiness. And so, you know, the acronym we're all very familiar with is HSE. And I, I slightly twisted that uh, to my own means. So instead of health safety environment or health safety executive, which typically in companies is what those initials stand for, I made it HHSE, which was happy, healthy, safe and engaged. And I would say to people, those are the four pillars of your well-being strategy. So when you're talking about company well-being, and I mean, I've been working this since no one was, you know, no one was talking about well-being at work. No one was interested. I'd get told, oh, people are here to work. They're not here to be happy. You know, they just need to be productive. And people would say to me, what does a health and well-being consultant actually do? <laughs> and I'd say to them, it's a fair question, but I would say to them, I'm here to make sure that your employees are happy, healthy, safe and engaged. And if something is happening that is stopping them from being happy, healthy, safe and engaged, then that's my issue to solve. Um, and what Rework does is it takes those four pillars and it puts them back into your hands because there's only so much we can rely on companies to do. Of course, companies are at different levels of maturity with this, different approaches to well-being. And so this was an opportunity to kind of put the power back in the employees' hands and say, this is how you can be happy, healthy, safe and engaged, regardless of role, regardless of whether it's an inverted commas good job, you know, whatever stage of your career you're at, this is how you can best look after yourself and put your health and happiness right at the centre of your career. Well, one thing that, that really got me, and I, I'm pretty sure I must have already told at least 10 people, was the bit where you say you're 12 years old and you're at school and yeah. you are asked to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. I mean, I know that I had no idea um, and struggled for a good few decades to actually find my thing. But that's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? We're, we're putting young children in a position to choose from a range of qualifications that are quite limited in terms of topics and say... You need to love this, enjoy it, take it in and get really good grades in it and then find a job in that thing that you liked when you were 12. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're good at, in inverted commas, when you're 12 informs the path you take for your GCSE options. Um, and then that informs the path you take for your uh, A-levels. Uh, instantly aging myself with these terms, I'm very aware, but you know what I mean. Um, and then that then determines your university path. And then once you've invested all that money in your degree, you feel you should use it. So the decisions that we're being asked to make sometimes stem from when we're 12 or 13 years old. And I just think, gosh, I would not let 13 or 12-year-old Steph choose any any aspect any element of my Nothing. life as it is now there is literally I mean even just like the music I listen to my taste in clothes everything has changed and so there is something slightly ridiculous about this idea that education you know we, we have this sort of very antiquated this very old-fashioned pathway um, of sort of education through to job and I think sometimes people laugh at the idea of a job for life, you know, say, oh, you know, those days have long gone, but we still sort of buy into the education for life. So what you were good at when you were 12 sort of determines what you're going to do when you're 52. It's so it's like, odd, isn't just it? Not, yeah, I, mean, I was just, just trying to think, I, I definitely did food studies as a GCSE. I did graphics or graphic design, I think geography, 
and German was the language I learned. I never speak German. I've actually only just discovered I have a passion for geography, um, but that was only while I was in South Africa and wanted to understand the rock formations. So that's taken a good 30-odd years. Um, I like to eat, but I don't like to cook. And give me a pencil, I'm probably better off writing out health and safety policy than I am drawing a picture. So it, it's, it's done nothing to lead me to the path. And I think if, you, if you're lucky enough to be academic and, and, and know what you want to do, amazing. But it really causes a problem then when you end up going to work and they're looking at the qualifications you've got. I know for me, I've worked flipping hard my whole life. As an employee, I put myself up there in terms of someone you'd want to employ because I'm, I'm passionate, I'm loyal, I'm hardworking. But people don't see that on a CV. They see the qualifications. Mm. And your whole future mm. is determined by that piece of paper that says you've got so many A's, A to C or, or 1 to 9 or 9 to 1, whatever it is now. So that was really, I like that. And there was another fact, I can't remember what, what the percentage was, but it was something like 28% of people that got a degree are using it in, that, in their yes. field. Am I close? Yes. Do you remember what it is? Uh, do you know, off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's about that. It's about a fifth of people actually use their education in their day-to-day work. So um, I also think that's really important when we think about the investment we make in education as well. You know, this idea that um, we have to do a particular job and, you know, that's what we've set our sights on since we were 18. And then as we're studying, we might go through and think, oh, I don't want to do this anymore but the UK pays some of the highest tuition fees in the world so you can see how people get stuck in that mindset it's almost that sunk cost analysis isn't it of, I've already put this much money in so I've got to keep if going. I dropped out now yeah exactly it's almost well that's money burned rather than actually where's where's my happiness where's my choice right. in this you know I've started down this career path and realized oh it's not for me and I'm never going to enjoy it but it's what I told my parents I was going to do or it's what I've always thought I'd be good at or it's what the school career guidance counselor told me that I'd be good at so I've got to do it um yeah I think I think education's got a lot to answer for absolutely I mean I wonder if our um at my school whether the careers advisor ever told anyone that health and safety was a good direction and I'd say very unlikely they ever said that now looking back my younger self was always very cautious so actually it's a perfect industry for me to be in because I I like to look at what could happen and try and prevent it from happening so I've been quite lucky that I've ended up so many years later in something that you could have recognized that in me when I was younger but we didn't ever push people that way so in terms of work and being happy what what do we what do you think people think happiness is I think for me when I talk about happiness at work people do picture a very zen environment where they're never stressed there's never a problem everyone's lovely to work with and that's not really what I mean by being happy at work so I apologize now if that's what people were hoping to get from the book Um, (laughs) but it is about when we're talking about being happy at work it is um, and I've got a sort of checklist where you can kind of check your HHSE status within the book but there's a the idea is that you you're not um that you're not resenting your job i think resenteeism is this new term that people are talking about at the moment where 
they're stuck at work either financially or in career progression or whatever it may be and they're not enjoying it and they really resent being there and I think we're seeing that more and more following quite high levels of burnout following the pandemic and that sort of thing people are just unhappy to be at work and they resent being there and I think gosh that's so unhealthy and the reason why I linked kind of HHSE together so the happy healthy safe engaged is because you can't have one without the other so you can't be happy if you're unhealthy you can't be um uh, safe if you're disengaged from your job for example if you're if you're not tuned in if you're distracted or you just have no engagement in your role or you don't care so you know if we think of it from a health and safety perspective if you've got someone that really just doesn't care about the outcome of what they're doing and they're in quite a safety critical role that's going to lead to issues right because they're completely disengaged from their role they're not thinking about consequences and longer term impact and they need Um, that engagement in the role in order to be happy in that role because otherwise you'll never get any job satisfaction and I do talk about this in the book but you really can't build a relationship a happy relationship at work based on the salary and the package that you get offered alone it's just it just isn't the way our brains are built so that first paycheck you might think woohoo but after that your brain goes yeah what else like once the money becomes what you're used to um, or it just becomes fact. It's like, okay, that's what I earn. That's my package. Even the most mindfully grateful employee will start to think, what else am I getting out of this job? So we can't build that sort of relationship, that happiness. I mean, it's a very cliche saying, but money can't buy happiness. It's true. It definitely I, can't buy it. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. living proof of that from from what I've done in my life. So I totally agree. What one thing I really dislike is, depending on your salary is dependent on whether employers expect you to work outside your working hours. So, for example, let's say you earn £10,000 a year and you work 9 to 5, you work 9 to 5. But if you earn £25,000 a year, you work 9 to 5, but you might have to do some emails in the evening. And then as you go up and and earn more, there's this expectation that you're 24-7. I mean, I was going to the gym with a friend a few months back and somebody called, not even, hi, how are you? Um, this is called my friend, not me, and said, um, I, need to go th- I need to go through this, what's this, what's this? There wasn't even a question, are you free to talk? There was like an expectation that I'm paying you a certain amount of money and therefore you're mine. And, and it's atrocious that people have that expectation. The more you pay someone, the more you own of them. It's, it's a horrible, for me on the outside, it's a horrible way of being treated. Do you think that, that people have that expectation if they're paying employees a certain amount of money definitely and I I also think it depends on the culture of the organization you work in because I've also seen that go the other way where actually lower paid members of staff are almost seen as um oh you should be grateful you know somehow so it's almost like oh oh you know we'll we'll treat you how we want we'll put you on whatever shift patterns we'll disregard legislation you know we will just use you how we want because you're um, less powerful in inverted commas, uh, whereas the higher ups will work, uh, you know, whatever hours uh, work best for them. And they'll, and this really, I, I do talk about this a bit in the book as well, but this sort of unspoken privilege in wellbeing that exists, I think, where the reason why I'm really passionate about making sure that everyone's wellbeing is looked after, and in particular, you know, factory floor workers, frontline staff, shop workers, people on union mandated shift patterns, 
I think they get overlooked when it comes to well-being because we often see companies roll out well-being strategies which work beautifully if you've got a company laptop and a company phone and complete control over your diary so um, I'll give you an example you know I was I was speaking with a company that were rolling out a a well-being strategy they were hugely proud of it and quite you know quite rightly so they put a lot of work into it but one of the things they were really encouraging people to share were stories you know so senior leadership were um, sharing stories of leaving work early to go and pick their kids up for example and I couldn't help but think of all the people I work with who are on trade union mandated shift patterns who are on Uh, production lines who would love to leave work early to go and pick their kids up who would love to take a walking meeting who would love to you know flex their day in any way at all but actually they stand on a production line or they stand at a workbench and they're they do an 8 10 12 hour shift and they have set break times and they have set lunch times and that's that's the extent of their you know autonomy over their job that that's the level of control they have and that just made me so sad because I work in these big you know manufacturing construction uh, environments where we have to think about everyone's well-being it can't be that workplace well-being is just for people who have complete control it, it has to apply to everyone that that was a big part of me wanting to give the book for employees rather than employers like I wanted employees to be able to say actually I can be happy healthy safe and engaged regardless of role I don't have to work my way up or put myself in an office job that I might not enjoy just to take care of my well-being I can take care of my well-being even if I'm working at height or I'm you know working on you know big noisy construction sites you know for enormous building projects that are going on for months at a time and I'm out in all weathers I really wanted to make sure everyone had that sense of control over their well-being so it's um it's definitely an issue I think different different levels how people are treated but also different different roles how they're treated uh, what what I think it does it, it it empowers people to be able to make choices from their side of employment so like going to an interview everyone's always nervous before an interview got to wear your best clothes got to give a good impression but actually an interview should be both ways and interviews for someone to go are you the right kind of place for me Uh, am I going to be able to to pick up the kids am I going to be able to book a doctor's appointment Um, and and the power always seems to be with the employer but actually and actually I have the same with health and safety I say to people you know, if someone says to you, oh, you can't do that because of health and safety, people go, oh, okay. They never question it because they don't know they can question it. They're not empowered with that knowledge. Whereas this book is giving people the ability to go, hang on, what about me? What 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 should I be expecting? What can I be doing for myself? Um, another massive part of the book for me is management and supervisors yes. because I think, you know, I, I say this a lot we we promote people because they've been there a long time but actually do they have the skills to manage people and and somebody might be in a business for 20 years and they're amazing at their job why don't we promote them within their job rather than potentially changing their role to manage other people when they then they don't have those key skills because it's the last line for me in health and safety management that supervisors there to check on people to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it 
So tell me a bit about what what's in the book in terms of supervisors and managers. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I feel really sorry for managers. I will say that. And I think, you know, I, I expressly sort of say that in, in the book. I don't know why anyone would be a manager <laughs> these days. I really, I just think anything, any level of responsibility, any problem, any issue, it's ask your manager. So, you know, I want a day off sick, ask your manager. Um, I need to understand this policy, ask your manager. And that's fine if managers are upskilled and they're... Um, taught how to support people um how to manage if they are good at managing people but to your point we reward long-term service by making people managers and i give an example in the book which uh, to me was was just such a a basic comparison but i talk about imagine kids being in a sand pit you know at the park and they're in the sand pit and they're living their best life and they're having loads of fun and then one kid's really good and really organised and like really like loves getting involved. And you say to that kid, oh, tomorrow you get to stand outside the sandpit. So the reason you come to the park is for the sandpit and you love that. But tomorrow you get to stand outside and watch everyone else play, which is what you really want to be doing. But not only do you have to watch them, you're now responsible for making sure they don't eat the sand or get it in their eyes or cut themselves or they don't eat the random plaster, you know, all the other gross things that we come across in the park. And then we wonder why they get unhappy. We wonder why they're not skilled. We wonder why... And it is a bit of a lottery. I know people who've been promoted by chance to being managers who are excellent, you know, who are fantastic managers and who are supportive and who hold really good boundaries and they excel. But it's luck, not judgment. Whereas I know other people, exactly as you're saying, who are fantastic engineers and they're wonderful engineers and they're they are literally top of their game and so what we do is we take them away from engineering and we make them a people manager it makes no sense to me at all it actually should be something that when we talk about risk management that that's something that needs to be considered because if you promote someone and they aren't the right kind of person they don't own those key skills then actually that's an issue that the company needs to recognize because that can have a massive impact. I mean, not only on on the business itself, but on people and how people feel. Because I, I'm pretty sure that everyone at some point has had a manager that has been quite a negative part of their working life. And what a shame that we've not only put someone in a role that they're not very good at, but we're also now having 10, 15, 20 people being managed by that person. And all of those people are now being impacted by having a poor manager or having a manager that actually affects their mental health yeah absolutely and it's setting everyone up to fail because as you say you know that's 15 20 how many people in a team they're being impacted but also the manager i don't think many of us go to work thinking i really hope i do a terrible job today you know i really (laughs) hope i negatively impact people around me and yet they, they may just being set up to fail and I, I give an example in Reworked about a manager who loved their team and was promoted and was really excited about being promoted to manager because they always sort of had this vision of, you know, everyone working together and coming together. And then a member of the team disclosed that they were going through a, a process. I, I think it was a, a divorce. And he had no idea what to say. He'd had no training. Um, you know, the training was coming down the line, as is often the case with management. Yeah. You know, the, oh, you're getting your how to be a manager training sort of six months into the role. 
and so he sort of offered a cup of tea and a shoulder to cry on but didn't really know what to say and then had a complaint raised against him because he hadn't followed the process and he said I would have followed the process I didn't know there was a process to follow and it was that not only was that poor employee impacted because they were there thinking well I just want some help and support and you're not offering that to me but also the manager was there thinking well this isn't what I signed up for you know I was really excited about all the work and the opportunity and the development I I didn't know about policies and having to manage people's um, you know uh, private lives almost and and the impact of, of that and I do think there is this real gap in skill with some managers where we're just setting people up to fail and then pointing the finger and you hear people say it all the time you know people don't leave jobs they leave, they leave managers and I just think but managers must look around sometimes and think yeah no I'd leave as well yeah. because I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> I, I don't want to be in this position so it, yeah. because actually if, if you think about it as a human being it's really not very kind to no. be putting people in that situations and and a, a workplace you know, we spend a lot of time there. A, a, a lot of our mind is focused on what goes on at work. Even at home, you're thinking about it. And so employers have a really big responsibility, don't they, to make sure that they have the right people, but also support those people to have the best experience they can in the workplace. But if people are empowered to help themselves, it's going to make a massive difference. Definitely. And that was a huge driver for me in getting some of that information into people's hands. Because I think if you are either working for a manager or working for a company that just isn't very mature on that journey, you know, the well-being journey, they're not thinking about how best to support you or develop you or really make you feel happy and healthy at work. Then at least if you know what you can do, you're not relying. It it sort of felt as though people were giving their happiness to someone else and hoping that they'd take good care of it. And I yeah. wanted to empower people to take that back and think, no, how can I be happy and healthy regardless of the job I'm in? Um, what can I do to make that happen rather than hope that my employer catches up and and can support me in that way? Because hopefully they will, but why wait if there's stuff we could do ourselves let's get on and do it right well I mean you talk about not just quitting your job because it's an easy way out isn't it I don't like my workplace uh, I'm not happy I'm going to quit and find something else but it's a bit like dating you or, or relationships you could leave one relationship because it's not very nice and then you go into another one that's exactly the same because you haven't learned any lessons so actually we don't always need to think about just quit it'll be easier it's about finding a better way isn't it yeah definitely people are always really surprised when they come to me and they tell me how terrible their job is and you know sometimes they'll they'll be you know talking with me for ages and ages and they'll be telling me all these horror stories and they're always really surprised when I don't just say oh you should just quit (laughs) (laughs) and exactly to your point I for me quitting is a reaction it's not a solution And I completely get that there are some jobs that are just not salvageable, right? You're never going to find anything good out of them. You're never going to love the job that you're in. But exactly to your point, you have to do the work before you quit. You have to understand why the job isn't working. Um, You need to understand where your needs are not being met so that you know what to look for in the next job. So if I know that I'm not happy, healthy, safe and engaged in this job, 
I need to know why so that in the next one I can make sure I am because otherwise what what you're saying is so true that you go from job to job to job to job but also what the research tells us is that every time you switch job without making a, a change within yourself without sort of doing some of that work the honeymoon period in that job is much shorter so not only do you have to go through all the you know it's quite a stressful changing job and it may have you know life impacts or, or it may change where you have to live or your commute and all that sort of thing not only do you have to go through all that process but then when you get to the job you may realize ah maybe it wasn't the job maybe it wasn't the job maybe I don't know how to support my health and happiness at work and so you think oh this is terrible quit go to the next one go through all that upheaval again and every time the the length of time that you love that job gets shorter and shorter and actually I've worked with people who have quit and restarted three four five times in quick succession and within a day have said to me I hate my new job Oh, so sad. And of course, oh, it breaks my heart. So sad. So, so sad. And of course, we could argue do you know in a day? Probably not. But what's happening is that they're getting to that job and it's not ticking those magic boxes for them. It's not. They haven't walked in and felt empowered and happy and healthy, safe and engaged. They've walked in and thought, oh, it's more of the same. And I think when that keeps happening, it, you could be exceptionally unlucky. Or we do have to turn around and look at ourselves and say, okay, what else can I do? Um, And the other thing for me, the reason why I really don't like advice around, oh, just quit, (laughs) is because I think if you've got responsibilities, if you've got bills to pay, if you've got kids to feed, or even yourself to feed, that kind of advice feels to me so flippant and so unhelpful. And... I think there's been this real trend in recent years, and I think it's partly been fueled by social media of, you know, love it or leave it, uh, you know, live your dream, be your own boss, like go, go hustle, you know, all these kind of words, which don't really mean anything if you drill down into them. And it just puts so much unhelpful pressure on people who are just trying to make ends meet, yeah. who are just trying to get through another very stressful working day, who are unhappy at work. And being told, well, just quit and go and be happy and do something else isn't helpful. And I get that it's well-meaning. I get that people want to be helpful and they want to offer some sort of, uh, you know, advice and support. But it's so simplistic. And actually, I think it's quite patronising because if you are unhappy at work, you're not just putting your head in the sand. You're very aware that you're unhappy. You know, you, you feel it in yourself. We probably all had jobs where your heart sinks a little bit every Monday morning as oh. you're heading in and you think, oof. And for someone to go, why don't you just leave? It's just so simplistic because if it were that easy to just leave and get another job, then you would have done. But it's, so for me, I really wanted people to um, absolutely quit if they need to. You know, if, they, if they've done the work and they've recognised this is what I need to be happy, healthy, safe and engaged and this is never going to happen in this job, then fair enough. But for those people that can't just quit, for those people that, um, you know, are not in a position to leave work or would struggle to find another job or the climate or whatever it may be, then I wanted to make sure those people could be happy, healthy, safe and engaged too. And in fact, I've got a whole chapter on how to survive a job that you're just doing for the money. Because I think, you know, again, we've probably all had those jobs where it's like, I don't love it, but I need it. Yeah, um, So how can I be? Exactly that, exactly that. So, yeah. But it's the, the, the important thing, I guess, is that 
what you said right at the beginning is we don't get told how to do it so actually if we keep saying oh we're going to find a, a job that makes us happy but we don't know how it's supposed to make us happy or we don't know how to decide what it is that we want to make us happy you're never going to find the answer are you going to be chasing it chasing it chasing it and then you're going to look back in 30 40 years and and be full of regret because you never actually worked on yourself um and i I do love a book that helps me work on myself but the, the biggest part of it is being able to understand what you're saying and that is why this worked so well for me and i think it would work for a lot of people because we need to know but we need to know in a way that we can understand so i highly recommend that people go out and um have a read if is there an audio book uh, there is yes is if there? you're not sick of my dulcet tones yes then uh, then yes the audio book is also available do you, is there like a specific place that it gets sold or is it anywhere that does audiobooks? Do you know? I, it's anywhere that does audiobooks. I think um, it's now on um, global platforms as well. So if you're outside of the UK and you want to get a hold of it, because I've had a few colleagues um, globally get in touch and say, oh, I'm listening to your voice. And I think, oh, you must be sick of it by now. <laughs> <laughs> Never. But see, I think if people are, are enjoying the podcast then the whole listening potentially works for them. So I think having... I'm a massive audiobook fan. Um, I love reading, but having a dog and two children and a house to run, if I pick up a book, I find it hard to put it down. So I'm utilising my long drives to places by um, having the audiobooks as an option. So I'm glad there's an audiobook for people. Um, And the book itself is on lots of... um, I guess you just Google, right? Google Reworked? Yes. Yeah, Google Reworked, um, it's uh, on Amazon, it's everywhere, everywhere you need it to be. Super. Do you have any social media that you have for people to follow? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of workplace wellbeing, I'm on Instagram at workplace underscore wellbeing. Um, And I'm not, I'm definitely not an influencer, that's worth saying. (laughs) Uh, But I do have a gorgeous community on there. Um, all all individuals who are very interested in workplace well-being I post every Friday a conversation I've had this week um, so uh, every Friday there'll just be a short video which is talking about something to do with health and well-being that's going on in the world or a good conversation that I've had that week that sort of sparked a few ideas and thoughts um, so that's very much the well-being community space um, I also have uh, more of a writing space, which is on Twitter, which is at Steph Fitz writes um, on Twitter. And uh, of course, all the all the usual LinkedIn, those kind of places as well. Lovely. Well, I love all that because it, it allows people to find the platform that works for them and have access to that kind of information. Because when we talk about well-being, I think sometimes some people will shut off because like you said people think it's an apple in the office or yoga at the end of the day but actually it's so much more and everybody needs to be able to understand their own well-being and when I'm I deliver a lot of uh, mental health awareness and getting people to understand that it's not doesn't have to be the things that everybody says or go to the gym um, or, or go swimming in cold water you have to find what works for you to be happy right and allowing people to look into this in a way that works for them empowers everybody so I think you have done society a favor um you've done me a favor and actually I genuinely I love the book on LinkedIn uh, a connection of mine had 
posted about the book uh, initially and said it was, I think he said it was the top, in his top three best books that he's ever read. And uh, he's not a young man. Um, so it shows that you're really having an impact with a lot of people. So um, thank you for that. Thank you for putting that time and effort in. Um, and whilst it might feel fabulous that you have a book, from your point of view, actually for everyone else to be able to have that kind of information, it's really wonderful. So it's lovely that you've done that. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to come on our, our podcast and share your information. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, anybody, if you have a read and you've got uh, any comments, you want to say how it's worked for you, then pop us a message on our Instagram, uh, angels. Um, or you can send us an email on healthandsafetyangels at gmail.com. So I will say goodbye. Thank you very much. Um, Daisy will be very sad that she's not been here to meet you. Um, but we can only have room for so many people. So <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed your time and um, good luck with everything else. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. And thank you for your amazing podcast because I recommend it to everyone. So oh, that's lovely. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Everyone sharing knowledge left, right and centre. So we will <laughs> we will wrap up for today and um, good luck with any future books. We'll be advertising them on here as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs>